Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This book, the focus is on 60s and 70s soul music. What is it about that kind of music that makes it a better fit for this novel than another style of music? Uh, that's a wonderful question. I think so much of the soul music that I grew up listening to was more raw and um, more authentically emotional than than the stuff I was listening to on the quote-unquote white radio station, you know, which was a lot of beautiful guitar solos, but, <laughs> but not really about want and need. It doesn't really matter what decade the story takes place in, but what does matter is where it takes place, and that's eastern and coastal North Carolina. You and I are both from eastern North Carolina. If somebody approaches this novel who's a native of eastern North Carolina, what are they going to see that makes them go, oh, yeah, you may have made up the names for these cities, but I know what you're talking about. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners happy new year and welcome to another episode of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a finalist in the 2023 PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of Art and Culture. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Trey Parker. And this is Matt Stone. And you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Rock is Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. 
Welcome to a soulful episode of Rock is Lit. If you've got a hankering for that sweet soul music, the kind that echoes with the sounds of Otis Redding, Al Green, Sly and the Family Stone, and Aretha Franklin, then you're in for a treat. My fellow Tar Heel native Michael Parker is here to talk about his novel, If You Want Me to Stay, a story in which 14-year-old narrator Joel Dunn Jr. takes us on a poignant odyssey. Joel Jr. shares the heartfelt tale of salvaging his family in the aftermath of his mother's departure and his father's unraveling sanity. From the rural landscapes of eastern North Carolina to the coastal vistas, Joel and his little brother Tank embark on a journey guided by junk food and the soulful melodies their daddy taught them to love. Michael Parker is the author of three collections of short stories and seven other novels, including his most recent, 2022's I Am the Light of This World. He is a three-time winner of the O. Henry Award for Short Fiction and winner of the 2020 Thomas Wolfe Award. Michael has taught for almost 30 years in the MFA program at UNCG. Before we dive into our discussion of If You Want Me to Stay, I've asked Michael to read an excerpt from the first chapter. So grab your favorite tunes, settle in, and let the literary and musical magic unfold. Chapter 1 That morning my daddy went off for the worst time. I was listening to some Rufus Thomas. Push and Pull, I believe it was, or maybe it was Walking the Dog. Both of them feature saxophone, sounds like it's sliding upside you in bed on a bone-cold night, and look. There are just certain songs which, look, if you hear them and your ass does not in any way respond, I am talking not the slightest slow-twitch muscle memory if you're old, and the minimal sway if you're still young enough to shake it, well, look, it's hopeless. Give it up. What is even the point? I had Rufus turned up loud while I fixed breakfast for my little brothers. Fruit Loops and canned peaches, which Carter likes them drained. And Tank cares nothing for the peaches themselves. He's all over the syrup. Ten in the morning and Carter and Tank were playing up under their bed with soup spoons to catapult plastic army sergeants up into the box springs. I had called them, and I had called them. I stood in the kitchen, moving to Rufus. It occurred to me to wonder where my daddy was, but when he's all clear, he likes to get up early and mess around outside. He's got a vegetable garden going every season. He's well enough to get something in the ground good after the last hard frost. Me and Tank and Carter, we used to help him out hoeing and especially watering, which we liked, because Tank would plant his sergeants in the furrows and we'd flood their asses head over hill down out of there when the levee broke high up in the pretend mountains, there being nothing higher than an anthill within 50 miles of our corner of southeastern North Carolina. Flooding also, in addition to the sergeants, Tank's namesake Tanks, my long-gone older sister's troll dolls, Cracker Jacks we would be eating to keep up our strength while hoeing and watering and whatever else Pack Rat Carter would stick out there to get obliterated by the awesome force of nature. But sooner than later it turned itchy and hot out in that garden, and my daddy would tell us, it's okay boys, y'all are now officially off the clock, and we get on our bikes and take off. Bye now, daddy, you better put on some sunscreen. 
He'd holler back at us to be sure and hydrate. We might see him again in an hour, or sometimes not until supper time. It did not matter when he was all clear. The Fruit Loops were puffing up, pink milk-soaked, for nearly an hour while I did not bother looking out for my daddy and called to my brothers who did not come and did not come. Could have been they hollered something smart-ass back at me. Likely I had turned up Rufus Thomas even louder, was walk-walk-walking that dog, or doing that dance they call the push-and-pull. All I know is somehow I felt it, through the sweet saxophone and a rhythm section so slap-happy it slung water out of the muddy Mississippi all over them boys' breakfast when I went to pour some milk in their glasses. The end of the all-clear in my poor daddy's head. I went in the bedroom I shared with Tank and Carter and found them up under the bed with suit spoons, acting like they had never heard somebody calling their names. First I tried to coax him out, but then it got even louder, the end of all clear. Rufus fading like my daddy had a hold of the dial, and I dropped down on the floor and slid in under there to where I could grab Tank by the scrawny shoulder and yanked him out and told him to run outside and wait for us in the yard. Then I did the same for Carter, who put up more of a fight because he's more of a fighter. I had him by the by-god hair by the end of it, which he loves his long yellow hair. Grabbing hold of it is the last resort, but it works like last resorts are supposed to until they don't anymore. I can't say whether there's something else I could have pulled to make his hair next to last resort. I would like to think there is always, say, another something to do to get something to act right. But then growing up with my daddy when he was half the time gone off, and my sister who seems like she got to the bottom of her patience for all of us around the time she learned to cuss, And my mama, who had left by that time, too, it's hard to believe people have a little bit of themselves on hold, like what my mama called her mad money, stashed away in a secret place for when you dearly need to spend it. When it comes to it, though, you're better off using yourself as an example than you are other people. And it seems like I am the type that will put up with right much so long as I think the person I'm putting up with is mostly worth it. Lots of people, including the great soul singers of the 60s and 70s, me and my daddy and Carter and Tank so dearly loved, have made mistakes in their lives or got mixed up in some trouble they never left out of their houses seeking. Myself, I like to listen to what all that mistake-making and I-didn't-seek-you trouble has left in the way of, I I think they call it a legacy. I know that somebody stood fast by the singers of my sweet songs. I got those boys out in the yard and then into the truck in flat seconds. Usually, too late was what it was when the rumbling started in my daddy's head. Sneak close up on him when he'd gone off and you could almost hear it there, distant like a TV turned up too loud in a blue buzzing house you passed by down a dark street. Sometimes I could feel it building up from the next room over. I'd need to get us out of the house before he blew, else hide. Now when I think of that last time, it feels separated into little here and there boxes. I have to tell it the way it comes to me, and that day now feels broken. Not one continuous song like what happened afterward, but more like someone's tuning a radio and stopping to seek out a chorus or a guitar solo than getting impatient or bored and moving on to the next station. Daddy had parked full out in the sun. It was boiling. Ten in the morning, and I had not yet got those boys to eat any breakfast. I grabbed the wheel of the pickup like I was going to haul us out of there for good, like my sister, like my mama. 
Sheriff Deputy Rex, when he come for us next to the last time, said, You poor boys. It must be awful stuck way the hell out here by yourselves when your pa goes off his rocker. No, I said, knowing by the way he said rocker that he wasn't the one going to save us. It teaches me to go on ahead and do it now. Don't wait until you're in bed. Lie awake forever worrying why you did not. Why did you do not do what? Whatever it is needs doing, I said. I could see I had confused the man. He shook his big, slow head. Sheriff Deputy Rex, you could tell, did not suffer Sheriff Deputy training to be carrying three dirty boys around to county agencies after a neighbor called to report their daddy was out in the yard howling at dead dogs again. It was not manly, and we boys hummed. When was the last time y'all came upside some soap? asked Sheriff Deputy Rex. And besides, unless our daddy actually went ahead and bodily harmed or sexually messed with us, which he wasn't about to ever do, we always ended up back down in the country with him. Sheriff Deputy Rex said several times he knew my daddy and liked my daddy when he was acting right in the head, that is, but he had never actually laid eyes on my mama. He said it in a way it suggested there wasn't any mama, which got away with me big time. I said, you want me to describe her to her? He said, shoot. I said, She's got gold hair and shiny green eyes, but the rest of her is like underwater, you know? Mr. Sheriff Deputy Rex studied my brothers in the rearview mirror, then looked over at me over his boxy shades and said, Okay, I hear you, boss man. In the truck, I tuned out Tank and Carter's growling stomachs and said to Mama, I don't relish sky. Bottom of the ocean is nothing to me but wet ridges, flooded old stubbly cornfield. Other people's mystery places ain't nothing to me. Places I crave are attic and basement. Dark and secret, filled with things people think they don't need anymore. Ma, I said, I want a basement. Don't say ain't, she said. Baby, look, down there so close to the ocean it would fill with water before you could even shovel out the sand. Maybe where you're at then? She sends me her address and I climb down off the train and shuffle along crowded sidewalks until I hear her voice floating down from way up in some hotel. Darling, come right up for iced tea and fig newtons. I climb all out of breath up there. I don't want doors closing on me I can't open, so no elevator for me. She's standing outside her room fully dressed under, I think you would call it a kimono. The lobby smells like elegantly got-up people who live irregardless in tiny rooms and cook soup on red electric coils. I say to Ma waiting in the hall, How come you up and left us out there alone with him? Don't cuss. I swear I'll fall apart on you if you cuss me, she says. It's my sister who's got the foul mouth. I ain't about to cuss her. Then she says, louder, as if I'm going to have trouble understanding this. I worried it might spread. It ain't the chicken pox, I tell her. Isn't, she says. See, Joel Jr., I slept beside your daddy and it got to where I could hear it, in there, even when he was all clear. I would put my ear up to his and hear that conch shell roar. So you took the TV and left us there with him? No, hell no, honey, that's not what happened. He took a golf club to that box, ridded of what he said were corrupt law enforcers. See, I got to where I could hear it all the time. I was always expecting it, even when he showed no signs of going off, even when he was the sweetest, funniest man I loved in this wide world. So you were thinking it was better just to leave us to deal with it? 
Y'all go outside and play, she says, which is what she always used to say when any one or all four of us, whenever we asked her something, she did not much want to answer. She goes inside her room and I follow and she lights a cigarette off a candle. A candle? Who burns one not in a state of emergency? I was thinking she had in her new candle lit high up in some hotel life and it won't reel while back in the truck, Tank and Carter were wanting to know why Daddy woke them up early hollering out in the yard at the neighbor's been-dead dog. We sat in the truck, doors locked, windows shut. Inside, Daddy had taken his hunting knife to the mattresses again, looking that money, that money. He brought the stuffing out of the mattress in handfuls onto the porch where he washed his hands of it. I'm through with you, Cotton. Tank, Watching mattress guts fluff off Daddy's fingers into the daylilies Mama planted in the dappled dirt where the gutters dump rainwater during a storm said, Daddy is snowing. Mama, if it's catching, we will get it, I say. She says, Oh no, baby, you won't either. It's not something would dare inhabit a child. Once I asked my sister before she left what in the world was wrong with our Daddy. And she said when she was little, our mama left our daddy and took his pickup and found another man to get with. She said this was what was wrong with him, having to see his wife's boyfriend driving his own blue truck with a My Child is an Honor Student at Trent Hills Elementary School sticker around town. He didn't say nothing, according to my sister. He just shrugged whenever anyone asked him about it and said, Well, what can you do, Jack? Then my mama came back to him and had more babies, but it was too late. The pressure had built up in his head. Uh-huh, I said. You're a lie. What do you think it is, then? I believe he was born that way. You better hope not, said my sister. And I asked her what she meant, but she was through talking to me about daddy's problems, and pretty soon she was through with all of us. Up in the cab of the pickup, some pop rocks Carter had stashed in the seat cushion and half a crumbly pack of knives were all we had for lunch and supper, too. Thank goodness for the empty coat bottle and the empty quart of oil in the floorboards. Already Tank was twisting and grabbing his mess, and after a little bit of this, he squealed, I gotta go, and made Carter hold the quart of oil while Tank filled it with his bubbly pee. Carter was not happy with this assignment. He said he won't hold no pee bottle. I told him if he didn't, he could go back inside and hang with Daddy. Sometimes I talked awful to Carter, but not really to Carter. He was just standing in but he didn't know that. He turned his head and held the goddamn bottle. I told Tank, stick his skinny thing up to the mouth, but don't go down in it. Don't get stuck now, I told Tank. Carter's head was turned, but I heard his smile. Flies buzz. Plastic thundered as he let rip. Tank fell asleep with his mouth open, his peak court throbbing on the floorboard. Carter caught me mumbling. Who are you talking to? I screwed up bad. I said, Mom, Mama? Baby say Mama, I said. Where's she at? My eyes went lazy slack. I came close to saying, y'all go outside and play. But I said nothing, because soon it would be dark down at the edge of the lawn, and the woods would creep up the grass in bushy shadows. When the darkness reached the hood of the truck, no lights on in the house, and two little boys both scared of the dark, what was I going to do? I thought about this and how I could not be talking to my mama day or night dreaming about basement, attic, up under the eaves, sump pump, cave cricket, crawl space. But have you ever tried to stop your mind from going where it believes it ought to be? Like a dog digging a sleeping hole up under a shade bush 
My mind kept seeking out that cold, secret sand. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. And I should say you were a guest in season one, episode 11 to talk about your 2022 novel, I Am the Light of This World. So I'm thrilled to get you back on the podcast to talk about your 2005 novel, If You Want Me to Stay. It's getting on toward 20 years since you wrote that. Did you have to go back and read it? I did. And well, I had to go back and skim it. I I confess I didn't read every word, but I skimmed it. (laughs) It's an interesting thing to read a book that you have not looked at in 20 years. You know, there's so many parts and so many passages that I don't remember writing. And some of them were very pleasing. And I was surprised by them. And it was as, as if I discovered them for the first time. So, wow. Yeah. And then there are other lines where you're like, oh, my God, how could I have written that? I can't imagine that there'd be very many of of those. Thank you. So I'm always interested in where the idea of a story comes from. Didn't you get the inspiration for this novel from actually seeing some kids sitting in a truck in front of their house? I did, yeah. I was on a really long bike ride. I used to go for really long, like 60, 70 mile bike rides. And this was out in the country in Randolph County above Guilford County. So I was maybe 70 miles into a ride and I passed this house where there's three kids in a truck and they seem to be playing. And then there's a a man sitting on the porch, standing on the porch, actually looking not too pleased. And so that was all I that was kind of what I went off of, because I mean, I don't I have no idea what those kids were doing. They might have just been playing or they might have been waiting for their father to take them into town or. 
one makes up stories, you know, to go along with the, with the images that you see. And um, so that's sort of where the inspiration for this came from. But I was also just interested in writing about soul music, which was such an integral part of my growing up. Because in the town that I grew up in, we had a station that played white music and a station that played black music. And I listened to both. And I also listened to radio stations from other parts of the country, like WLS out of Chicago, for instance. There was a great station that really must have had a lot of wattage because it was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Wow. Yeah, I could get it. I could get WLS out of Chicago, and I think it was called WOWO, W-O-W-O, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they played lots of lots of soul music, a lot of Motown, but also a lot of Stacks Vault. And we're going to talk at length about music in a bit. But before then, you have said, this is a quote, fiction writers, I think, are after a sort of poetic truth which to me is all about the contradictions in human behavior and the way we might feel one way and act another. That, to me, is a much more valuable truth, end quote. So let's talk about these characters and their contradictions, because there are many. Tell me about the Dunn family. Okay, well, there's a dad and um, three sons, and there's Joel Jr., who's the narrator of the book. He's 14, I think. Yep. See, I'm going to have to ask you questions about it because you, you're much <laughs> I just more familiar. finished it the other just day. Yeah. It. Um, and then there's Carter, who's, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe. Carter, I'm not sure about. I don't think we ever got his age. Tank is seven, though. I do know that. Yeah, right. So Carter might be a little older. And then there's this, an older sister. Angie. She's 17. Angie, right, 17. Very good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then the mother who's run off, as they say, who's... In what uh, my in my mind is Morehead City, Bulkhead, I think it's called in the book. Yes, the father has a lot of. Uh, you know, I never say what exactly his mental illness is. To my mind, it's probably bipolar two disorder, and he has delusions and psychotic breaks, and he's having a psychotic break during the uh, time in which the book is set. A really kind of terrifying one, but of course, in terms of contradictions, he's also a really sweet man and they revere him and they're also terrified of him and he's taught them a way to live in the world in a way and yet their life is completely conscripted and and limited because of his illness and because of the fact that the mother is not around due to the father's illness there's a certain purity about the father in the way that he loves music he worships music and that's the thing that he is able to connect with the children over. And then Joel Jr., I think the contradiction there is that he's somebody who wants to flee this abusive scene and save his brother Tank, but he also slaps his brother Tank around quite a bit. Yeah. So every single character is this fully fleshed out, round character, even the mother who ran off. You see a tender side of her in different places. You see... Angie, the foul-mouthed older sister, you see a tender side of her. You do an amazing job of creating this incredibly realistic family in an incredibly dysfunctional, awful situation, which makes the book that much more tragic. Thank you. They're very much a family, despite all the stuff that they've been through and all the stuff that they're going through presently as the book is, when the book is set. They have a kind of shared sensibility, a shared sense of humor, 
a shared kind of ironic detachment from the world and a an ability to play with language, which I think is a very important part of that book. And so much of what I was trying to do with the with Joel Jr. was just in the music of the prose and the syntax and the kind of sonic qualities of the work. So I was trying to pinpoint the time in which the novel is set, and Publishers Weekly indicates the story takes place in the 1970s rural South. But there's a mention of CDs on page 139, so it's definitely more recent than that. Then there's a mention of Hurricane Ida, but that hurricane, which was so destructive in 2021, obviously happened way after the novel came out in 2005. And then ultimately, I decided it doesn't really matter what decade the story takes place in, but what does matter is where it takes place, and that's eastern and coastal North Carolina. Every time I think I smell that sweet southern rain, it takes me to a station on the long black train. Wanna hear the wind blow and feel the earth move below me. In spite of all the good times, I gotta rest my soul. So I'm gone, yes I'm gone. Gone to Carolina, but I know that I belong. You and I are both from Eastern North Carolina. If somebody approaches this novel who's a native of Eastern North Carolina, what are they going to see that makes them go, oh, yeah, you may have made up the names for these cities, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, there's a, there's quite a few of them. I mean, Bulkhead is definitely Moorhead City. Bottomsail Beach is obviously Topsail Beach. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have to go too far for that one to flip it on its side. There's also the names of real places like Chinkapin, Holly Springs. And in fact, I was thinking today when I was rereading it, that the route that they take from the town of Trent, which is based on the town that I grew up in, which is Clinton, is the route that I used to take to Topsail Beach, which would go through Cannonsville, through Chinkapin, down to Holly Ridge, actually, not Holly Springs. I did make up the name of Hurricane Ida. There had not been a Hurricane Ida at that point. So that was completely fabulated. And I don't know, in terms of when it's set, I don't, I think I had it in my mind that it was set around the time that I was writing it. You were writing it in what, 2003, four, and it came out in 2005? Yeah, I think I wrote it in 2003. So I, I don't think I had nailed it down. I definitely, I, I remember reading that in Publishers Weekly and thinking that that was not what I intended. But, you know, Mm-mm. I think they felt that because all the music is that's in there is coming from the 70s. So they just, yeah, that was their time marker. But as you say, there are other things, CDs, and you know, I think other developments and time markers that would suggest otherwise. Right. Well, the thing that gave Moorhead City the, the bulkhead as Moorhead City away from me was sanitary restaurant. Oh yeah. And anybody from our neck of the woods who ever went to Moorhead City knows that you went to sanitary restaurant for lunch or dinner or something. Exactly. And you had you had the fried shrimp or the fried fish or something, and the hush puppies were good. And that comes up a lot in the book, which I very much appreciated. Yeah. I do want to talk about the voice and style of the book. This was the first novel you wrote in first-person point of view. This was your fourth novel, but it was the first one that you wrote in first person. Now, 
You chose a doozy of a way to enter that point of view, assuming the voice of a 14-year-old boy prone to internal dialogues and stream of consciousness observations. Did you consider writing it in third person or was it always going to be in first person? I wrote the first chapter as a short story, which was published in Shenandoah. And I think I never intended to write it in anything but first person. And um, at that point, when I first began writing, I wrote in first person quite a bit. But increasingly, I have not done so. In fact, this is the only novel that I've written, the only first person novel that I've written, and probably the only first person novel that I will write, because it's it's difficult, I think, to stay in one conscious, one, one person's consciousness for that for that period of time. For I mean, this is a short novel, and, and even what 180 pages or whatever it is was pushing it for me because I kind of was chomping at the bit to get outside of his consciousness into someone else's. But I mean, one of the things about him is that he's able, he's, there are a lot of sort of modulations in terms of his conscience, consciousness, as you said. I mean, he's able to play it straight, but then sometimes he really goes off. He's one of the things that he does is repeat certain phrases and certain images. And I think that was intended to be a response to to trauma because that's what one does and when you're in an emotional situation is you tend to repeat and you have these sort of talisman charm like phrases that you keep grabbing hold to and and he has those yeah he says over and over again and you can tell he's trying to convince himself as well as maybe the reader my father's a good man i love my father mm-hmm. he says that over and over and then there's another phrase he repeats a lot that I want to talk at length about later. It's the light in this world. But those are two that immediately come to mind. He repeats light in this world? Light in this world. Is that in this book? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I, I didn't. All right. Let's jump ahead. Let's go ahead and talk. <laughs> <laughs> I have been thinking about this so much because the novel that we talked about in the uh, season one episode that you were on was I Am the Light of This World, your newest book, which I love. And everybody, if you haven't heard that episode, you need to go back and listen to that. And I'll put a link in the show notes. So as soon as I saw this phrase show up in the book and then saw it repeated, light in this world, the literature nerd in me, the word nerd in me fixated on that word in as opposed to of Mm -hmm. and what the difference might be. And then I just thought, what is it about that phrase or a variation on that phrase that interests you, that keeps you fascinated enough to include it in two really great novels? Well, I would say that it's, it's a spiritual aspect of the phrase. Both these books, I'm not fond of the term dark when art is concerned or fiction. I, I'm not interested in when people describe things as dark or, or lighter, you know, that to me doesn't mean much. But I would say that these two books are probably just in terms of subject matter and, and what happens and plot. Some of them more difficult, definitely the two more, most difficult books I've written in, in that there's evil. Yeah. As there is in every novel, obviously, but to a greater extent here, the threat of evil is real and pronounced. And so in order to give it some levity, which there's levity throughout, I think, in terms of the music, in terms of the, the playfulness with language. But also there's this sense in believing that there is light in the world and that it's not all darkness and it's not all, you know, there's hopefulness and trust that things are going to get better. 
And you mentioned levity. There's so much humor in this book that I think is absolutely necessary. And it's it's from everything from Southern colloquialisms to Joel Jr.'s rhythm as a narrator to the bit with Frosty and his store. You know, I have these kids talking to each other, and I have these kids talking to adults in the place where they grew up. As you know, growing up in Eastern North Carolina, a large part of any conversation is just trash talk. (laughs) I mean, you're just talking trash. And, you know, there's a great deal of honesty and truth in the trash talk. It's not just throwaway, incidental kind of stuff to pass the time. It's really about something deeper. And so I wanted to capture that and the sense of indirection often that comes across in the vernacular and in the way that people speak to each other. And I don't think of this as, I mean, I know this book got talked about a lot in terms of its southernness. Obviously, the rhythms are particularly southern and the vernacular. There's a lot that's particularly southern. And there are a lot of expressions that come out of the south and uh, come out of the part of the country where we, where you and I come from. But vernacular is not limited to the south. And so in that sense, I don't find it. I just find it rooted in a kind of poetry of everyday speech which one I hope could say of um, Frank McCourt you know, or any Irish writer. I mean, you can say that about any good Irish writer, William Trevor, Edna O'Brien, Claire Keegan, who I've been reading, and millions of other writers. And Brooklyn has its own idiom. So, And also, I, I just can't write anything that's not, that doesn't seem funny to me. I will get bored. I just will get bored. And sometimes it's like I'm trying to amuse myself, especially in a first-person novel. But I think the same was true of I Am the Light of This World. There was a lot of like mm-hmm. trash talk going on between main character Earl and the, his lawyer and other people in the in the book. And that was not necessarily just to even out the contrast between the darkness and the light, but just to keep me interested and keep me going. And, and also, it's just the way that people talk, if they're interesting. Mm-hmm. So both of your novels I've had the pleasure of talking with you about on the podcast are music-centric. Both have titles that come from songs, I Am the Light of This World, and that's a song by Reverend Gary Davis, a.k.a. Blind Gary Davis. And this one, If You Want Me to Stay, is a song by Sly and the Family Stone. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today. Available for you to see I'm about to go And then you'll know For me to stay I got to be me You'll never be in doubt That's what it's all about We talked at length about music In I Am the Light of This World When we did that interview For instance, that novel includes references To Lead Belly and 70s radio rock This book, the focus is on 60s and 70s soul music. What is it about that kind of music that makes it a better fit for this novel than another style of music? Uh, That's a wonderful question. I think so much of the soul music that I grew up listening to was more raw and um, more authentically emotional than than the stuff I was listening to on the quote-unquote white radio station, which was a lot of beautiful guitar solos, but... But not really about want and need. I mean, it was about want and need because so much of what I was listening to, you know, Clapton and the Stones and, you know, Led Zeppelin came out of the blues and was a kind of transformation of the blues. But this 
soul music is, is it, I don't want to ever use the word authentic when talking about music. I think that's a huge mistake. Authenticity is just so subject to interpretation and there's no objectivity where that's concerned. But there is something I think that strikes a chord in these kids who have learned and to appreciate this music from their father. And there's something about the father's emotional, both fragility and his openness and, and his, his, he's wide open in the way that he loves this music. It affects him and it makes him want to get on his knees and cry and, and it makes him want to shout and it makes him want to dance and it makes him want to take all the furniture out of the living room and move around. And, and that's not something I don't think he would feel if he was listening 10 years after. I just don't think that would be the same kind of effect. What you're describing is something very spiritual, religious, is something that you might see in, in certain churches. Yeah, which, I mean, that's where soul music came from, right? I mean, that's yeah. exactly what it is. It um, came out of gospel. And a lot of times it is gospel. You know, it's just mm-hmm. gospel with a sort of different beat to it or, or more electric guitar. Or when, in the case yeah. of Sign the Family Sign, a thumpier bass. A kind of more funk bass than soul music was used to before Sly Stone came along and changed everything. What do you think it is about soul music that particularly resonates with Joel Jr.? We get a sense of of the father's passion for it and and why he might be passionate about it. But is there something in that music that Joel Jr. hears? that speaks to him about greater things, things outside of just the music? I think it's all about desire for him, yeah. It's really just about desire. It's about, I'm not sure how to describe it, just an unbridled emotional honesty of soul music where desire is concerned. They want, you know, the people are singing about the things they want and that they need and that they're not getting. And the things they need that they're not getting and how that's affecting their life. And that's exactly what he's going through at, at every moment in this novel is, you know, that great discrepancy between what the things, the things that he wants to happen and, and what he's dealt. Oh, I love this quote on 154 where Joel, as narrator, says, All our singers of songs suffered. You can hear the light in their voices, though, the sweetness of having survived. Nothing like song to breathe air into a puncture. And that's an incredible way to put that. And that, I think really crystallizes how he's feeling and what he's going through. And one of the reasons why that kind of music resonates with him in a way that other music doesn't. So, Michael, every chapter begins and ends with certain artists or certain songs. Can you discuss the significance of using music as a framing device for each chapter? I think it was it happened in the very first chapter, and then I used it as because I had established it, and then I thought, well, there's got this can be a pattern. So there was no larger formal structural device planning behind it, except oh, it worked for this one. Maybe it'll work for the next <laughs> it works one. For all yeah, of them. <laughs> and and it did. I mean, obviously, the songs were chosen to correlate the moment, the emotional moment at hand. It's not as if I willy nilly, arbitrarily chose some song, you know, to start the second chapter. I remember working really hard, on, and it's weird that I remember this because it's 20 years gone, but what would be um, Carter's favorite song? And it's Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drills. That was kind of a big thing for me to figure out what song that would express his character. And then the way in which he be- he had to always be Archie Bell, 
and that Tank and yep. um, Joe Jr. were the drills, even though they don't know what a drill is. Okay, so the song and the artist choices are perfect for the chapters that they're in. So let's talk about some of them. Curtis Mayfield, he shows up quite a few times and there are multiple songs, including People Get Ready, which is a which is a big one in the book. The train imagery is really important. Talk to me about what Curtis Mayfield means to you. I love Curtis Mayfield. A lot of people don't. They don't like his voice. What? I've never heard anybody yeah, say I've they heard don't two like or it. three people say they don't like his voice. That, that there's something about it that's too, I don't know, that he sings in a falsetto or something with more power to him. I, I don't, you know, I don't have that problem. But I, the the story that the book is based on or that it came out of was called People Get Ready. So it was originally published as People Get Ready. That was the title. And Curtis Mayfield was instrumental because of the train thing and because of how, you know, that ties into the OJ's love train, which comes back in the novel several times. Mm-hmm. And then there's a the whole superfly thing. So on the one hand, people get ready is this a spiritual that everybody's saying, Aretha Franklin was saying it, it's, a, it's an old gospel song. And so he has that side of himself, which is a very traditional, I mean, and he came out of the Impressions, which is a not a secular group, they sang religious music. And so he has that background. And then he has, on the other hand, as he moved through the 70s, it gets a lot more secular, you know, singing songs that became hits for black exploitation movies and like Superfly. I mean, he, he's very versatile and, and kind of encompasses what soul music became. Like it was this one thing that one could pigeonhole as race music. And then it became something so instrumental and so important in, in our culture. And it's interesting to me that Europeans and, and, and especially the, Jap- the Japanese were onto it way more than we were and obsessively collect soul music. And, you know, I just saw Lee Fields. I don't know if you know him. He's a soul musician. He's probably in his 70s from Eastern North Carolina, actually, originally. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to check him out. I haven't heard yeah, of him. Yeah, he's tremendous. He was here in Durham and he was absolutely fabulous. And, he spends most of his time in Europe wow. because he can get the gigs. He's right. I think I just I follow him on Instagram, so I just saw he was in Germany and um, Australia, and most of his gigs are, are overseas because they have an appreciation still of that kind of music that I don't think you know is happening today, with the exception of Charles Bradley. Charles Bradley came back and made it important and sharing. Sharing somebody in the Dap Kings. I, now I'm forgetting her name. She was on that Dap label, that's the same one that Charles Bradley was on. But I mean, they sort of brought back a traditional soul music in a way that sort of tied us back to the soul music that we grew up with, which is not much in play these days. No. Just get on board. 
This is Michael Parker, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Sly Stone obviously is important in the book. The name of the book comes from If You Want Me to Stay, that song. Well, that was the first record I ever bought. It was Sly and the Family Stone's Greatest Hits. When I was 10 years old, I had a lot of records before that because my brothers and sisters were older and they would give me their records. But that was the first. I remember buying that with the money I made at my father's newspaper, inserting papers, saving up enough money to go buy Sly and the Family Stone's Greatest Hits, and which came out in 1969. I, don't, I can't estimate how important he was to me and, as, and to the world as a musician. And, you know, his band was integrated at a time when no one except maybe Santana and the Chambers brothers mm-hmm. had both, both black and white and brown musicians. It just was, you know, it wasn't happening. You know, Sly didn't care if you're white or black as long as you play your instrument. And the kind of variety of the songs that he sang, like everyone, everybody is a star of ballads to straight up funk of um, fun. And also, If You Want Me Stay, which is a really gorgeous, beautiful song. Just incredible amount of variety for someone who's you think of as just like, oh, he's an origin of funk music, but he's much more than that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Prince took a cue from him later on. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. His, actually, his biography, is, his autobiography is coming out. Sly Stone. Sly yeah. Stone? Really? Yeah. All right. Pretty soon. Okay. Aretha Franklin is very important. I mean, I cataloged all of the music, all of the artists mentioned in the book, and I had a full page single space, so I'm not going to mention them all, obviously. But I I do want to touch on the ones that played an integral role in certain chapters or with certain characters. She's huge in the novel. She is the mother's favorite artist and really the only artist that the mother in the book loved. Talk to me about Aretha. You can't write a book in which people listen to soul music without honoring the queen of soul. I mean, it's it's impossible to do, and why would one want to? I mean, <laughs> she's hugely, hugely important. And again, someone who could do so much, who had so much variety, and and also just that voice. We'll never see another one like it. No. She was a preacher's daughter, and she comes out of the church. So there's this this spirituality wrapped up in her music. But it's clear in the book that you don't have to be religious to get this music. You don't have to be religious to have it touch you because Joe Jr. is kind of iffy on the God thing. Yeah, I don't think you have to believe, be a believer to be a believer in Aretha and what she represents and the places she takes you. And and also just some of her, I think it's 
that song ain't no way this figures prominently in, in this and it's not one of her great greatest hits was it written by her sister yeah carol i mean it's a beautiful beautiful song it has an incredibly weird complicated time signature where she shifts the song shifts in time signature and in, in the middle which one has to listen to it 10 times to figure that out but and i'm not a musician i'm just you know i can play a record player <laughs> Otis Redding. There's a chapter where the father talks about Otis Redding. I don't know how much you want me to say about that, so I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, the book I wrote after this one is called Don't Make Me Stop Now, which is, comes from Otis Redding's I've Been Loving You So Long, Don't Don't Make Me Stop Now. I love Otis Redding. I'm crazy about him. I think he's like a, the most singular talent. I've said that about every artist that you've mentioned, I think. <laughs> But in fact, they're all different and they're all distinct. I just can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine a world without him. And I can't believe that he was able to accomplish what he accomplished before. I think he was 26 years old when he died. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even think he made it to the 27 Club. Yeah. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships rolling in then I watch them roll away again. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Ooh, sitting on the dock of the bay. So Sam Cooke is in the book. We've got Sam Cooke. We've got the Staple Singers. I'll take you there is a huge song in the book. All these musicians that we've mentioned are coming out of the church. The staple singers are straight, you know, Mavis Staple still sings gospel music. And I'll Take You There is a song with religious undertones, but it was a crossover hit. Mm -hmm. The staple singers were great crossover artists. As I remember it, they were the only black band that was in The Last Waltz, Martin Scorsese movie. Mm -hmm. The staple singers are in there because of the band's appreciation of what they did and what they do. Um, and I've seen her several times. She's just amazing. She's just incredible on what she can do. But that song in particular, I think, is a moment of hope for Joel Jr. You know, he wants to get there. And here's Mavis Staples saying, I'll take you there. Yeah. But it's not just the lyrics. That song has the most incredible build. Mm -hmm. you know, it's really insane the way, that it, the way that it moves and the way that it sort of soars towards the end. and. The way that she lets loose in that final minute of that song is just really incredible. Also, who could resist that beat?
the only other one that I'm going to mention, Al Green, Let's Stay Together and Call Me. The only thing that I will say beyond that is that something in the book involving Al Green is absolutely one of the most powerful parts of a novel I've read in a really long time. Oh, wow. I can't really say what I want to say, but the way that you incorporated not only his music, but some aspects of his life into the narrative is just amazing. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I think Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, Al Green, both had really tragic things occur in their lives. And that is um, something that Joel Jr. is skirting. It's this mm-hmm. deep tragedy that is always looming. And this, I wanted there to be a sense of obvious tension in the book where you don't know what's going to happen, of course, but, you know, a rising mounting tension towards the end that had to do with the way in which the music was accelerating and the way in which the music of his consciousness was cranking up and the way that things also were sort of breaking down so that, you know, there's uh, images that he sees. Of I remember there's one where he's going home on Moody Loop and he sees and thinks about an image of a country farm that he read in one of Tank's books where everything's very orderly and there's a barn and there's horses and it's beautiful. And so that kind of thing comes into his mind. And then the next minute he'll be thinking about a song. And so everything becomes very integrated and also separate and broken and fragmented. And that's obviously, you know, the way in which music incorporated through his his desire for everything to be okay is both representative of what he needs and what he fears. What a beautiful time we had together. All right, I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one from each category I'm going to throw out. You ready? Okay. All right, let's play the game. First category, things to do in eastern or coastal North Carolina mentioned in your book. So like several of your novels, especially your early ones, if you want me to stay as a North Carolina story, I mean, it's it's much bigger than that, but that's the setting and there are aspects of North Carolina that permeate the story, more specifically, eastern North Carolina and some coastal Carolina thrown into the mix. Which one of the following things to do in eastern or coastal North Carolina mentioned in your novel brings back a vivid memory from your childhood or just inspires a good old-fashioned guffaw? Number one, go to the State Fair in Raleigh or Super Flea in Wilmington. Attend or participate in the National Hollering Contest at Spivey's Corner. Throw spoiled pickles down a ravine. Or get carted off to Dick's Hill. 
Uh, I would go with the hollering contest because the hollering <laughs> contest was just 15 miles from where I grew up, and we went every single year. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like? That was amazing. It was a, Lots a, of hollering. A lot of hollering, and it, was, it became quickly – you know, a thing for hippies to do. I mean, originally it was just this small thing and it was featuring people who actually called their hogs oh. <laughs> with a certain kind of distinctive holler so that you knew that Erwin Godwin, who's the one that started, man that started it, who's from Newton Grove, had a particular call that he used to call his hogs back from a field and his neighbor would ha- have another holler had its own distinct rhythm and its own pitch and so people would get up there and do their hog hollering but then within two or three years it was just a huge massive party wow people came from chapel hill and durham and raleigh and other parts just to go to the hollering contest New category, junk food mentioned in If You Want Me to Stay. The Dunn family is not a well-to-do bunch. In fact, they're teetering on the edge of poverty. And of course, the children have been neglected and left to basically fend for themselves. That means they don't eat the best diet in the world. Here is some of the junk food mentioned in the novel that they nosh on. If you were a hungry kid in a similar situation, which of the following would be your go-to goodies? Fruit Loops and canned peaches. Pop Rocks and Half a Crumbly Pack of Nabs, Hot Dogs and Nutty Buddy, Funyuns, Squirrel Nut Zippers and Fried Pie, or Peanut Butter Sandwich, Ruffles and Coca-Cola, or as the old timers from this area say, Coca-Cola. I'm going to go with Funyuns. (laughs) I love Funyuns. (laughs) I'm crazy about Funyuns, and I used to eat them all the time, shooting pool at Boykin's store on the intersection of... Oh, Seven Bridges Road and Highway 421 in Clinton, North Carolina. I can't shoot pool without tasting a Funyun. <laughs> what the hell are squirrel nut zippers? I've never heard of them. Oh, really? It's a candy. It's a very hard candy, which then became a, a pretty famous band out of Chapel Hill that did swing music, squirrel nut zippers. Oh. Yeah, remember them? They were big in the 80s when that whole swing swing music, big okay. band music came back in and squirrel nut zippers were immensely popular but this was a hard candy yeah it's really awful you could break your teeth on them i I don't know why i would i liked them so much but i had a friend who really loved them and i love the title squirrel nut zippers you know new category cassettes found in joel jr's daddy's truck joel jr finds the following cassette tapes in his daddy's truck right before he takes off with tank which one would you be most likely to blast if like Joel Jr. and Tank, you were on the run from your mentally ill daddy in search of your absentee mama. Number one, CCR. Number two, The Sound of Philadelphia featuring Teddy Pendergrass and Gamble and Huff. Or Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain. I'm going to go with The Sound of Philly. Okay. Yeah, crank that bad boy up. I mean, it's it's very different from the kind of music that's mentioned in the book. It's Philly Soul is just has a very slick surface that's unlike Motown and definitely unlike Stax and American and Memphis. So, but I'm really fond of Teddy Pendergrass. I'd say 
I'm glad you didn't pick CCR because in the book that tape doesn't work anymore. <laughs> That's the end. <laughs> I didn't remember that. So yeah, Junior Wood blasted it, but it doesn't work anymore. So good choice. Okay, we got two more. Songs mentioned in your novel that one or more of the characters doesn't like. There's so much music that the characters love, worship even, much of which we've already talked about. Here's something a little different. Songs or musical styles that one or more of the characters hates. Which is your least favorite? Heavy metal, like Megadeth and Metallica. Joel Jr. hates this music, and his sister Angie's boyfriends love it. Laura Nero. The mama doesn't like it because it reminds her of her whiny sister, Motown. And we can talk about why the daddy doesn't like that in a minute. And dollar store music like James Taylor's Fire and Rain, Fleetwood Mac Dreams, 10CC, I'm Not in Love, Peter Frampton's Baby, I Love Your Way. Poor Joel Jr. has to listen to these music versions of these songs in the dollar store when he's in there with Tank. Which is your least favorite? Yeah, it's a tie between Metallica and the latter. I like Laura Nero, actually. I'm very fond of her. She's terrific. But the syrupy versions of 10cc is pretty hard to take. Well, talk to me about Motown and why the daddy doesn't like it. Well, I think he doesn't like it in relief against Stax Vol, which he sees as, you know, Motown is slick and overproduced and about money. All about money, whereas Stax Volt is more about producing a kind of sound that's closer to what he sees is the truth. It's more raw. And I have to say, I agree. I like Motown. I'll listen to Motown, but I have the complete Stax Volt recording. It's like something like 20 CDs of deep, deep cuts. Off of, wow. Yeah. And they still have tons of stuff in the vault that they're releasing. Okay, last category, memorable quotes from If You Want Me to Stay. There were so many quotes from the novel that I included in my notes. So many I could have included in this category, but I chose the following three because I think they reveal so much about Joel Jr. and his predicament. Which one resonates with you the most for whatever reason? Here's the first one. This is all Joel Jr. as narrator. In the truck, I tuned out Tank and Carter's growling stomachs and said to Mama, I don't relish sky. Bottom of the ocean's nothing to me but wet ridges. Flooded old stubbly cornfield. Other people's mystery places ain't nothing to me. Places I crave are attic and basement. Dark and secret, filled with things people think they don't need anymore. That's the first one. Second one. Again, this is Joel Jr. as narrator. People, if they loved you, they had to leave, though. Don't ask me why. It don't make sense to me. It's just something that happens. But see, I must not could love right. I would not leave my little brothers there with him, and I was for damn sure not about to let Sheriff Deputy Rex take them. Last one. Music was to blame for taking me places so far back in time. If there was no music... I would not have a thing to do with my daddy. He would be a pitiful figure thrashing like a banked salamander in the gravel drive. Without Aretha, my mother would not exist either. A selfish runoff because she could not take it, bitch. Which one you picking? Uh, I'm going to go with number one, I think. Yeah. 
I think it says something more, maybe a little bit more subtle about his sensibility and about, you know, the things that he doesn't really know how to talk about. Right. And this love of attics and basements and just the undiscovered things. And the other two are maybe slightly more topical Mm. and that they say what they mean in, in a way that's more forthright. Well, I cannot stress enough to the people listening, this book and I Am the Light of This World are very powerful. And I highly recommend both of them. Get your hands on them wherever you buy books, your local indie bookstore, wherever. But where else can people go to find out more about you? And you've written a lot of other books. Where can they go to find out more about your other work? Well, I have a website. It's uh, michaelfparker.com. And um, actually, I need to update it. So this is a good reminder. But there's all my books are listed there with a description of each one of them. And you can order them from um, your local independent bookstore, from bookshop or wherever you get your books. Folks, if you missed Michael in season one, episode 11 of Rock is Lit, definitely check that out. I'll put links in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about and flip back through a novel that you wrote nearly 20 years ago. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. No, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, Lit listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.